0: Pardon? <laughs> That's the correct answer. Well, <laughs> right, I'm just going to start with a little bit. For, I, I was considering I grew up in Bermondsey, in South London, um, next to a big beautiful bomb site. And some of you may remember uh, bomb sites, which were, to me, like a park, what we would now call a park, although I don't think health and safety. Um, anyway, I just thought this was six. I, I, I am convinced that six is about the best age to be in the world, really. Six, that was the best. On my sixth birthday, I ate a fruit sundae that gave me an enduring taste for the golden flesh of tin pineapple chunks. At six, I scored centuries, took hat-tricks and rampaged around the bomb site in my sheriff's badge, slicing Nazis with the wooden sword fashioned by my father. Age six, I was commended by Raymond for my heroic role in the big battle against the ginger kids from the estate and won a knobbly knees competition at a party at which I also picked up the award for Dirtiest Hands. A bar of soap. (laughs) At school that year, I planted the stone from my plum in the thin stripe of garden in the playground, expecting a plum tree to grow by the next morning, played David to critical acclaim in the school nativity and discovered the infinite possibilities of marbles. In my primary school, the mischief gang was a thriving concern, having shoved a dead weed up the exhaust pipe of a park keeper's car. (laughs) That summer, our family and I went on holiday to Devon where, for the first time, I swam in the breathtaking seas of England. Every day of being sick seems now to have been full of incident and emotion and intriguing possibilities newly imagined. There were unpredictabilities but the world was essentially benign, constant, eternal, and organized around me. The war, whatever it was, was over, and I was here. God was in his heaven, all was right with the world, and I want to be six forever and ever. <laughs> On our return from Devon, an interminable journey involving the AA as usual. I rejoined the gang on the bombsite for some late summer adventures. The next day, I wondered why Paddy, my girlfriend, was not around. She'd been ill when we set off, but that was ages ago. I found out later, when my mum called me in and told me in an unfamiliar, serious tone, that Paddy had died. This was a shock, the biggest of all my life. Poor Paddy, she was only five. Such a little life she had. That night, I lay in bed next to my sleeping brother and looked up at where the street lamp outside shone a pattern on the ceiling, a pattern that danced to the headlights of every passing car. I would not see Paddy Moxham again, ever. And what did ever mean then? And I was like Paddy, so I would die too. My mum and dad would die, and so would Richard and Nick and Raymond and Mrs. Gom at school. Yes, even Gom, Gom the atom bomb. <laughs> Even she would die. And when it came, it would be, be what? It would be black, dark and absence. I wouldn't be there anymore and the world would not care. It would continue as it had continued long before me. This could happen at any time, unexpectedly, like it did with Paddy. And the gang would still play on the site without me, just as I had been playing without Paddy. Back at school one morning after my seventh birthday, I fell into conflict with Lynn Bleuer, and, as an act of aggression, told her to think about death before she went to sleep that night. (laughs) I forgot about this, but the next day she came up to me, her face drained and drawn like an old lady. Mournfully she informed me that she had indeed contemplated death, and I realised from her expression that her infancy, like mine, was now over. Perhaps it was these intimations of mortality that launched me into my prepubescent showbiz career. In December, just after my seventh birthday, I played macho baddie Captain Hook in our class production of Peter Pan, performed in front of the parents. My big entrance, snarling and brandishing my coat hanger Hook, frightened the fairy girls and squaws on stage, but produced big laughs in the audience. As the girls cowered and the boys looked confused, the laughter grew louder. On a roll now, I left the stage and began to terrorise the individual spectators. (laughs) More laughs! Now I was laughing and so were the squaws, the fairies, Peter, the lost boys. Everyone was laughing and it felt very fine indeed. No doubt I had distracted from the thrust of the narrative with my self-indulgent antics. But the people gathered in that hall were happy however briefly, because of something I had done. I observed how the sound of shared laughter united people in a loud, visceral moment. I have sought it out ever since. But maybe I delude myself. Maybe my real showbiz epiphany was not the grand hook exploit on centre stage in the school hall, but rather the week after, when I was sitting at the back of the classroom during playtime and accepted a thruttony bit to show my willy to two girls. (laughs) It was certainly my first professional engagement. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, a familiar thing actually, I've been done stand-up before when there's been a signer and it's very hard for a comedian to resist having a play with the signer. I was intrigued. And now, what did you do there for uh, show them, them my Willy? <laughs> I
1: think you exaggerate somewhat, Joe.
0: <laughs> what if it had been, I showed them my penis? Was that similar? Yeah, right. <laughs> what, no, right. I, <laughs> You can just get caught up in that. I've, told, I've done that before. Anyway, thank you. Uh, I, I, I worked, uh, I was, um, you know, I went to university. I went to the University of East Anglia. Do we have any fellow UEA grads here tonight? <laughs> Ooh, you must have been in maths, mate. <laughs> but, um, and uh, funny enough, there was a kind of recession at the time. Those of us of a certain age, you know, I don't get too fretted about recessions. We've been through about four or five, haven't we? Uh, but anyway, I, I got a job. I'd been to the Edinburgh Festival for the first time and had an amazing time, but lost all my money, of course. And, um, uh, but I went back and I got a job, uh, as I had before, as a road sweeper. And, which has been useful in an odd way, in all sorts of ways ever since. Partly because it always looks good on the CV, somehow. It makes me seem like I've got a kind of gritty, proletarian background. Um, so that was how I spent the winter of my 23rd year living in a tip pushing a thick broom along the gutters of Mitcham, wearing a pair of Babs old tights under my jeans on cold days. I got up at 6.30am to walk to the yard, which became 5.30 when I took on the overtime job of cleaning the depot toilets before going out on the broom. Every morning, even if I had slept soberly for ten hours, I was shocked by the hateful, cold shriek of the alarm clock and resolved that one day I would find work that did not start so brutally early. To my disappointment, I found I was no longer a solo sweeper as I had been in Greenwich, but one of a crew of four in a milk-floaty vehicle. The keenest in our gang was the ever-cheerful Ron, A big, red-faced man in orange overalls, like a giant peach. I got to know and relish uh, the simple rhythm of Ron's thought patterns. He had distilled all his opinions into two phrases. It's a game, followed soon after by, it's a game and a half. (laughs) Either phrase could be supplemented by the phrase, where you are. Morning, Ron. Morning, Brian. It's cold today. It's a game, Arthur. It's a game when it's cold. It's a game when you are Ron. It's a game and half where you are Brian. Or? Oh, God, Ron! This chicken was 50p a pound. 50p a pound. It's a game, isn't it? It is a game, Ron. It's a game and half, Arthur. It's a game and half, Ron. It's a game and half when it's 50p a pound of chicken, Arthur. It's a game and half, Ron. It's a game and half where you are, Arthur. It's a game and half where you are, Ron. Jim Callahan, eh, Ron? It's a game, Arthur. Callaghan it's a game and a half where he is. Once we were proceeding past a wake being held in a front garden when Ron startled the Bourners by booming, it's a game and a half when you're dead. <laughs> this was not the greatest period of my life. People's twenties you come to realise seldom are. But I'm glad that I was now a road sweeper and then an impoverished layabout because it gave me an insight into life near the bottom of the pile. If you're lying in the gutter, or indeed sweeping it, you can look not just at the stars, but straight up the world's skirt too. No one registers street cleaners. Commuters on their way to work look right through you, and your status is so low that you can observe the universe untroubled by the universe observing you. I convinced myself again that I was a kind of flaneur, one who roamed the roads in thought. But have also lived out a solidarity with a manual worker or his unemployed friend. No doubt I was, as usual, romanticising my situation, but now that I am handsomely paid and recognised by drunks, <laughs> I tell myself to remember that time when I wasn't. Meeting some of the Cambridge Footlight Boys a while after our first Edinburgh experience. I was envious to discover they all seemed to be working for the BBC or had commissions to write for TV comedy shows. But that humble cat doffing slice of my father that lived within me told me this was the order of things. My consolation became that when I did get the opportunity I could talk about having a lonely job or signing on without sounding patronising it was easier for me to emphasise with an audience than for those who went straight into showbiz or never knew what it was like to have run out of money for the weekend by Friday evening. Those poor bastards missed out on cleaning the council depot toilets. (laughs) (laughs) A man goes to the doctor. The doctor says, well I'm afraid you're going to have to stop masturbating. Oh no, says the man, why? "'Well,' says the doctor, "'I'm trying to examine you.'" <laughs> and so I didn't see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I became a comedian. <laughs> it was the only thing to do. Um, <laughs> And I, I started out in comedy the, when the very when I came up to Edinburgh first in 1977, there were no stand-up comics. Hard to imagine. In, in, there wasn't a one stand-up comic on the fringe until 19 I've got it in 1981, I think. Um, and then this whole London thing started, and the phrase alternative comedy was born. Although it was then known as alternative cabaret. And um, I'm just going to uh, read a little bit from my book about. Um, uh, comedy, kind of around that time, and what it meant. And uh, there's a debate going on, funnily enough, now that is, reminds me very much of the sort of debates that were going on in the 80s about what's acceptable, what is what you can, what you can't say, what you should be allowed to say. The, the, you know, people, you know, the, the bloody political correctness gone mad. You know, that sort of. You know, does a res- comedian have a responsibility for what he's saying, or is he just throwing lines out into the ether? Anyway. It is not unreasonable to suggest that alternative comedy, if it ever existed, lasted for a few months. But even if this is the case, I am persuaded by all the people who have asked me about it, or reacted against their imagined version of it, that it was an identifiable shape in the zeitgeist. The template for the British stand-up comic then was the sort of act you saw on telly in The Comedians, the show which gave us Bernard Manning, Stan Baldwin, Frank Carson, etc., this type of performer did not play Edinburgh, just as Edinburgh-flavoured acts were not seen in Liverpool. I felt no affinity with these chubby blokes in their frilly shirts and glittering jackets, slickly marching their jokes by in single file. Jokes, to me then, were for old blokes in a pub, ready-made narratives displaying no individuality, belonging to no everyone and so to no one. They told of a world I didn't know, of nagging wives, stupid Irishmen, seaside boarding houses and salesmen travelling in ladies underwear. They may once have been the laborious diet of my grandad's era, but now they were the weapon of the pub drunk. Alternative to comedy more like was the standard response of the traditional comedian to what they saw as hostile competition. As far as they were concerned, the new comics were scruffy Herberts who shouted fuck Thatcher over and over while raving tanky Stalinists hooted indiscriminately in the front row. But what they, we, were was an alternative to them. If they had us down as loony lefties and lovers of lesbian whales, we retorted they were gay-hating, xenophobic and sexist. Bernard Manning was racist, Jim Davidson was a wife-beater, Frank Carson peddled stereotypes, they all played golf and voted for Mrs Thatcher. They were the enemy. There's no doubt that some of the acts reacting to these dinosaurs were right on to a ridiculous extent. One popular all-male group, whose name escapes me for legal reasons... (laughs) performed full-length shows devoted to the proposition that we men were just awful violent and stupid and should all shape up. Off stage, this pose was considerably undermined by one member's towering piles of porn and another's tireless pursuit of every woman under the age of 30. A comic called Michelle Reed did her entire, very funny, 20-minute set about how rubbish periods were. Ian Saville, the socialist magician, demonstrated the Marxist theory of alienation using coloured handkerchiefs. And he still does, by the way. The staple subjects of the trad comic were either ignored, denounced or satirised. Ian McPherson declared he was going to tell an Irish joke and then spoke a line in Gaelic. John Thompson did a hilarious character based on Bernard Manning called Bernard Wrighton. An Englishman, an Irishman and a Pakistani... What a wonderful example of racial integration. (laughs) Where the uh, comic did charity shows for apolitical causes, cancer, holidays for kids, we were more likely to be on stage in support of Amnesty International, the Cuban Solidarity Campaign, the Birmingham Six, the Striking Minors, the anti-apartheid movement. It's hard now for young people to understand the fierce division that existed in British politics in the 80s when Thatcher and her followers pursued their brutal agenda, when Tories felt no need to be touchy-feely. Is he one of us? Thatcher liked to ask, and so did those of us on the left. Thatcher once remarked that any man who rides a bus to work after the age of 30 can count himself a failure. We hated the woman and all Tories, and we took the bus. One of my own sacrificial gifts to the Labour Party was a refusal to sleep with any Conservative voters. (laughs) Whoever sexy and alluring they might be. It was a resolution that was only tested once but amazingly I held my nerve and went home to pleasure myself in a socialist way. (laughs) There's an irony about we comics opposition to Thatcher of course. What could be more Thatcherite than a stand-up comedian? self-employed, ununionized, unsupported by any namby-pamby arts grant, he's got on his bike and got a gig. As she won the next two elections, the jokes and the vitriol continued, but I'm not persuaded that the routines of a small number of obscure comics troubled Conservative Party think tanks for long. Alternative comedy's tiny contribution to the left was the shaking up, of the cosy, homophobic, sexist, racist world of 70s and 80s light entertainment. Not much, but I'm glad I was there. Maggie, Maggie, Maggie! (laughs) Oh, well done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny how that has sort of gone back, you know. know, Now that debate continues, and there are comedians out there who... um, I mean it strikes me they're reacting against that, uh, which is fair enough, but really all they really do is churn out the same kind of material with a slightly ironic twist and a sharper suit, you know. But, um, right, I'm going to read, Uh, anyone planning to have sex this evening? (laughs) This is the book festival, not a bloody nightclub. A corporate gig in a London hotel and I had gone down well enough that I went to the bar after for compliments and drinks. Both arrived swiftly, delivered by a man with a needy look. You were very funny. Put your booze on my tab. I'm drowning my sorrows tonight. Uh-oh. Oh "Oh dear, why? Tell me, are you married? He was itching to tell me his marital problems. Christ, I didn't want to be stuck with this bloke all night. (laughs) But poor fellow, he so wanted me to be married. Yes. Oh, God, why did I say that? Make a joke out of it, indicating a woman I had never met who had just arrived at the bar next to me. I'm married to her. How long? Eleven years, said the woman. (laughs) Bobbed hair, red lips, enticing smile. We're still really happy, I said. The woman and I exchanged a glance of complicity as the man embarked on an account of his failing marriage. I began to feel guilty that he was obviously distraught about his relationship, whereas I, apparently, was in a long, happy love affair (laughs) with a woman he didn't realise had only clapped eyes on five minutes earlier. I wanted to admit the lie, but my wife and I were in too deep. By now, we had two children and owned a small cottage (laughs) in Suffolk. My other half had also described the magical evening on a mountain in the Pyrenees, where it seems I had proposed in some style. (laughs) And do you still fancy each other? Asked the sad husband. Oh yes, she said. (laughs) And proceeded to elaborate on our sexual games and explosive mutual orgasms. Eventually the fellow had heard enough about this sickeningly successful liaison and he scuttled off forlornly. My wife, my grand passion, the mother of my children and I were alone together for the first time (laughs) in our 11-year marriage. She introduced herself, we laughed, drank cocktails and later we repaired back to the hotel room I'd been given but not expected to use. In the morning she was gone and I was single once more. Best, I thought, to leave it a while to get hitched again what was the point when my first marriage was so sublimely perfect <laughs> and all over in eight hours? <laughs> all right. I'll sit down for a bit. I've got a couple of bits. Maybe I'll end with a little yeah, flourish. Be great. But, that uh, would be yeah, good.
1: And what was the name of this hotel, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the Roxburgh tonight, Al. Have you got <laughs> a, rather a nice room. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, <laughs> tell us about, how did you, because you, reading the book, you seem to have sort of drifted into being a stand-up. There wasn't that kind of driving ambition that uh, No. Well, got Partly, you there.
0: partly there, there wasn't, you know, like I say there, there wasn't really a, you know, you could want to be in comedy, but you didn't want to be a stand-up comic then because they were those guys and mm. they just seemed irredeemably sort of old-fashioned and... The, the groovy stuff was, um, you know, Oxbridgey. Often, you know, uh, Derek, um, Peter Cook mm-hmm. and Dudley Moore and the Pythons, all that lot, were a great inspiration to us. Um, although, when the alternative comedy kit thing came, there was a sort of sense of oh bollocks, all these Oxbridge people yeah. uh, who've been monopolising uh, the, the the airwaves. And also, you know, I was inspired by some of the earlier guys. I like Spike Milligan was mm-hmm. a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even. Eric Sykes, I know a good story about Eric Sykes, who was a writer, performer, a uh, man, he, I think he's more or less blind now, but he still kind of churns it out sometimes, he's amazing, and he goes up even higher in my estimation, when I discovered he'd always hated Bruce Forsythe. <laughs> 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 and um, apparently uh, they met after a long time, and Bruce Forsyth said, do you know, it's been so long now, Eric, since we, uh, I can't even remember why you hate me. And Eric said, like, well, nor can I, but it's the only thing that keeps me alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, fuck off, Bruce. <laughs> but um, I, I never, I, yes, I wasn't, I mean, it's interesting now. I mean, wherever you go, there are stand-up comedians. You can't move for With agents and
1: managers and Well, entourages. but even then, for
0: every one of those who's got an agent and a manager, there's 50 who are out there doing the gigs in the grotty pubs all around the country for no money. You know, Everyone, it would seem, wants to be a comedian, whereas there are only about three of us in my day. You know uh, but it, it is an aspiration now. I think young kids think, oh, I'd like to be a comedian, where I don't think that was so much the case. I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted, to, Well, I wanted to do fuck all and smoke a lot of dope. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, and in some
1: ways, uh, <laughs> I've what, achieved it. Uh, <laughs> what about the MCing? How did you get into that? And what, is, what's, what are the secrets of being a... Yeah. A good MC. Well, it's a peculiar. Um, I need to learn them fast. Yes, in a sense, you're
0: you're being the MC this evening, and very well you're doing it. Oh, out. bless you, Arthur. Thank Despite you. Despite that rather poor line about, uh, <laughs> 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 I thought I would give it Your to you. fair hand, or dreadful uh, <laughs> like cliche. Um, the, well, the, the, it's interesting. I mean, even the word compare is what we sort of use. Uh, well, the Americans say MC, and so do we more and more now. But Compare, which is an odd word, it's a French word, but the French don't really use compare as a word. It's a weird thing, and um, but there the, there was a history, I think, of um, people introducing accents, and, and there's no doubt, I'm sure anyone here will tell you, or you will know, Al, if you go to a comedy night and there's someone who's kind of vaguely controlling the temperature, the, the rhythm, the the. Sorry. It's not. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and that that suited me, because partly because it meant I could do sort of bite-sized chunks of material. Also, it gave me a chance to improvise, to ad lib, to become used to talking to an audience, to feeling the atmosphere, uh, and to sleeping with some of the acts, and, uh, <laughs> and drinking a lot. Um, uh, so, it's uh, it's a bit like someone who gives a party, being a compere. You know, if you give a party, you want everyone to have a good time, you introduce people to each other, you tell them where the toilets are, where, you know... And in some sense, that I I have that that side, a sort of genial side of me, which um, uh, and that allow I allowed that to come to the fore, and I suppose I had a a natural aptitude for it. I mean, some comics are brilliant comics, but make useless compares. You know, I mean, I don't think Jack Dean would be very good. He's too kind of doer. I mean, he's a brilliantly funny man, but you know, you need someone who's going to kind of get people involved, and you do need a bit of cross fertilisation. Although too much, hello, where are you from and what do you do? Drives me fucking mad. Mm. <laughs> you know, I you should sit there in front and say, I'm a comedian, what do you do?
1: <laughs> what about the, the broadcasting? You seem to have taken, you know, very naturally to that. I mean, did the BBC ever say, uh, kind of turn down the Bermond's ear, oh boy, let's have a bit more RP or... Well, I think you... in some
0: ways it may be the opposite. I mean, obviously the, the accents on Radio 4 are closer mostly mm. to yours than mine now. Mm. Right. Um, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> but um, the um, Radio Four—well, you know what Radio Four does—and I'm—I'm proud to be associated with Radio Four because it, it's uh, its intelligent speech on the radio, uninterrupted by adverts. And you can't get either. Well, I don't mean Chris Moyles or someone. Obviously, yeah. I no, mean, he's not Radio Four. I mean, Radio Four is a wonderful institution. And I think it's one of the genuinely binding things. I mean, it is fairly middle class, but it is always trying to find other voices. And and in some ways, I benefited. Perhaps I thought, well, we can't just have everyone sounding like Brian Sewell, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps my voice. Also, you know, I understand with radio, some people have voices that are good for radio and turn off the mic. Okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, you, there are certain voices that sound good on radio, and luckily mine is one of them. I might uh, another thing I'm very bad at is practical things.
1: Right. Well, Hello. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm even worse. So you're getting no help from me.
0: Yeah. All right. No, oh, yeah, I've done it. Is that, can you hear me? Uh, egg,
1: bacon, beans, fried
0: slice. No. <laughs> it's the classic sound check. So, uh Yes. So four. I suppose. And um, words. Yeah. You know, I was always. Words has always been the thing that. Moves me the most. So, words and talking, in a sense, I was a you know, it was natural that I should want to be on Radio 4 and become so, and I'm delighted I did. And I've done lots of interesting things on Radio 4, I did a whole series. Well, several series of a show called Sentimental Journeys. Which I thought you were terrific at, really terrific. Yeah, you'd definitely come to the room, Alex. Thank it's you. Number
1: 287. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, really? Well,
0: I, it, yeah. it, was, it was slightly in the comparing thing yeah. in a way. I, the programme wouldn't happen now. I think it would probably be too expensive or something. Well, I went away, usually abroad, from up to two or three days, four days even, with people. So I went to Havana with Arthur Scargill. Um, yeah, imagine that. Um, <laughs> I uh, I went to the south of Italy on a strange trip with Jermaine Grier. Um, <laughs> uh, I and and you know I was interested. If I, I did my homework with this. I was and I found. And if you're thrown with someone for that bit of time, you get a kind of intimacy. And what you find, it's like if you see a house that you once lived in years ago. You can't help but say, like, oh, I used to live there. And the more you see the house, if you went in it, you'd go, oh, yeah, that happened and that happened. So I was with people who were remembering things as they were saying them, which makes for much better radio than if people are trotting out their past stories that they've done before, as I appear to be doing now.
1: <laughs> 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 well, I must say, I mean, you, you write very unsparingly of your... Well, your depression, in effect, and also of your very serious illness of a few years yes. ago, which you were lucky to recover. Now... Sitting in the intense, intensive care unit at St. George's Hospital, did you begin to take stock and order your life and all the rest? Well, of I
0: it? mean, it's a huge shock. As anyone here, I'm sure there are people here who've had a sudden illness, a uh, life threatening yeah. one, and it was more likely that I would die than live. Um, and it inevitably shakes you up in all sorts of ways. And mine was really due to alcohol. So I, uh, you know, I had. I, was pretty much told if you keep on drinking, you're going to die, uh, and that's you know concentrates the mind a bit. <laughs> uh, although I did know a bloke who said, "Can I think about it, doctor?" Uh, <laughs> uh, and you know, I was kind of sprinting at a brick wall. That's the cha- what I call that chapter, because I was kind of you know, showbiz is a, a job that encourages excess, late nights, uh, you know, sexual escapades. Uh, Where can I join? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you know, you can get carried away. You know, I was in my late 40s and I was still acting like a 24 year old, you know. Um, And I kind of felt, well, this, I've got to slow down. And also, you find, as I'm sure again people realize, if you have been very ill and you're released and you're not ill anymore, it's an exquisite feeling. And it doesn't last all that long, but you have an absolute wonder at the world. And I think before that I was getting a bit complacent, a bit smug, you know, I had plenty of work, I was doing all right. But I I think it made me refocus uh, on, you know, how the crucial things, my family, my friends, and how lucky I was in a way. And so... um, it, it was good for me to nearly die. <laughs>
1: right. And,
0: I, you know, uh, mm. that what doesn't... Because I
1: wouldn't... You weren't an alcoholic as such. You just no, liked
0: I, to drink. I was a terrific boozer. Yeah. Yeah, I was... <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the trouble, partly, because mm-hmm. I could still go on stage and be pretty articulate whilst quite pissed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't necessarily stand up. Um, <laughs> no, it wasn't that bad. I, I was a, a, a... Maybe you'd call me a, now a functioning alcoholic. Mm-hmm. It's... It, um, and, of course, my work encouraged it. You know, you most jobs that you go to, you're not surrounded by people drinking heavily who, you know, want to slap you on the back and cheer you at the end of the day. It's a shame, in a way, I think. <laughs> Sometimes I think people should do that, you know, when you knock off at the insurance job. You're, well done, mate, brilliant. You've done a hard day at the computer there. But, they, you, don't, you know, the humble, the humble uh, worker doesn't get that, but in showbiz, you get that all the time. So... And I, I had a natural, you know, there was a party animal in me, and there still is uh, to a degree. And I just wanted to take me back to my drink more and chase her and run up that hill and travel abroad. I had an, an appetite for life. And I think in some ways I felt that alcohol gave me that appetite, but it didn't, of course. No. And in the end, you know, uh, being a bit of a pisshead in your 20s. It's kind of acceptable. But when you get to your 40s, you begin to look a bit pathetic. And, you know, when you go to your 60s, we probably start again.
1: <laughs> My mother
0: certainly has.
1: <laughs> so it's genetic. Anyway, I think we should have the lights up if we've got any lights, which I think we have. And let's have a look at our patiently waiting. Yes, slowly, slowly you're emerging from the gloom, ladies and gentlemen. And so is that all we're going to get? No. right so, we can There's see someone with a question down there. Right, there we are. The microphone does work, I believe. So let's have your question.
0: Oh, Arthur, if you have to listen to all the books you want to read
1: on CD, you will know that most authors are not successful at reading their own books. So please, please tell me
0: that you have read your book and it's available on CD. <laughs> and I will get my local library to order it. You work for the company, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It's available. I, I have read it over... Has anyone listened to it? It's really... Cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please, somebody say yes. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, it is available on a CD, and I advise you to go and order it immediately. Mm-hmm. I read some of it on uh, Radio 4 as well, mm-hmm. and I had uh, you know, a wonderful reception. People, loads of people wrote to me. Because, you know, in a way, I'm, I suppose I was trying to write a bit about the time I've lived in as well. You know, Thatcher and, and the way the world has changed and, you know, so for my generation. Well, and perhaps for 20-year-olds too,
1: I hope. Well, for all ages, I'd say. Right, some more questions. Yes, another... We're moving along game. the row here. here. We are, yes. <laughs> no. uh, the first time I saw you in Edinburgh, you were doing a thing in Italy's park... Oh yeah, Kinlock, An- Kinlock Anderson. What what was all that about? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> i saw it twice. That and was I saw it short. yeah. Well, I
0: wrote it, and I don't know. Um, <laughs> this was, I like to do outdoor shows. It's funny now, they're much. they I noticed they're quite fashionable in a way now. Outdoors are what you might call as well spot site specific ones as well. Where there's a lot of shows I noticed in Edinburgh um, that take place in, in a building, and it's like the building's almost part of the character in the story. Um, and I was always intrigued by the possibilities of going in the street. And in fact, Michael, who was the former Fringe director, is here. You're here, aren't you, Michael? He said to me, why don't you, uh, this is in the mid-80s, do a tour yourself? You know, there's the tour guides go down the Royal Mile, say, away, oh, hey, and this is Greyfriars Bobby. And you know, I don't do a Scottish accent in front of a Scottish audience. <laughs> Worst thing any Englishman could do. Well, that didn't stop Ned sharing mine, but um, <laughs> he was shameless. Uh, But, you know, so I took the idea of the tour and, uh, shall we say, ran with it. So I'd made up facts about, you know, they're still burning witches in the castle and, uh, you know, this is where Moira Stewart lives with Billy Bremner and... (laughs) and, uh, St. Giles Cathedral's named after uh, Giles Brandreth. Brandreth. Uh, (laughs) And then I took to paying... I'd say, now there's an old bylaw here, we have to crawl this section. Uh, and I, first, I had these sort of bemused American tourists who said, What the hell is this guy? Uh, and they were quite fun. I did that because I was on stage. I didn't come on stage till one in the morning that year, and I was trying to stop myself from drinking too much beforehand. But then I took to do them at night. And I have I mean, still done them on and off over the years. These two, I don't know if anyone's ever been on one, they start at sort of 2 a.m. at the top of the Royal Mile. Uh, on a Saturday night, usually the last one in the festival. And um, they can get a bit unruly, to to say the least. Um, And indeed, in in 2001, the year I'd done a show called uh, Arthur Smithing's Leonard Cohen, I think it was 2000, anyway, I was actually arrested during the course which is a big badge of honour in some ways, you know. I mean, if, you, if I say to Stan, I say, yeah, you know until you've been arrested during a gig, mate. Um, <laughs> but I, to be honest, I can't face being arrested anymore. I'm, uh, I'm too old to get arrested, so they don't quite have the edge they once did, I don't drink anymore. But that, and this was the one that I did that was a more of a kind of child-friendly daytime one, where I led people around Inverleith Putting Green, and I had all sorts of weird people jumping out from behind trees. I had a man standing in the boating pond reading Burton Russell. <laughs> and I constructed the whole story around a guy called Kinlock Anderson. who Does anyone know who he is? He was some Edinburgh notable, I can't <laughs> quite remember his story. But they're in Inverleaf Path, if you go in the little gardens there, there's a statue right in the middle with Kinlock Anderson's name on it and the legend So Passes Life Alas How Swift. And I haven't seen that, and knowing I was going to end there, I then constructed this whole thing about Kinlock Anderson and his love, great love affair, and I had people running at each other. And... <laughs> hey, Moyer Anderson, you're right, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was Kinlock's Kinloch's... Wa- yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then, I, and it, but people obviously thought I'd just made it all up, but then ha- arriving in there, you see the thing, and there's his name, engraved in, in a Victorian time, it must have been, and indeed with the legend, so passes life so laughs how swift you know only in scotland would you get that as a thing in the park <laughs> <laughs> but no. good on it i know i'm in favor of that and so we ended there remember we had fireworks and do you know i'll tell you do you remember in that there was one bit where i had the audience i was sort of leading them round, and you walked over to a snogging couple and all they i'd hired them well hired them i didn't pay them obviously <laughs> I said to this friend of mine, right, find a bloke and you just be lying there snogging so that everyone has to walk over them. And that man was Mackenzie Crook. <laughs> so, yeah, something, and then I saw him the next time I saw him, he's in the office. And, uh, <laughs> but he started out snogging in one of my outdoor
1: shows. He owes it all to you, Arthur. <laughs> he does. Now, any more they questions? Also. Over here. Any more in the front row? No? Well, I'll tell a couple ah, of jokes. Ah, there we are. I can see a hand up there. Here comes the mic.
0: After having a near-death experience, do you think you've become more adventurous or less adventurous because of it? Well, I'm, I'm less um, physically adventurous. Um, perhaps, uh, but then I suppose that may be a, a function of age. I'm, I am i know, I think maybe more so in a way because, you know, you get a very powerful foreglimpse of your own death. And you know, nothing is more, you know, what was it, someone, I think it was, was it, uh, someone said... Nothing
1: concentrates the mind of the... Like the prospect
0: of your, your imminent death, yeah, is it Dr. Johnson? Something I mean? like that, yeah. And I, that's true. And you know, if, you're, if you were all now given, imagine someone came in here now and plausibly announced we've all got two hours to live. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you you would be, be sitting in here now. <laughs> <laughs> I, bet, I bet about a hundred of you would light a cigarette. <laughs> Included all the ones who'd given up 20 years ago. <laughs> and always thought, oh, I'd just have one if I'm dying, you
1: know. <laughs> and you'd be back in room 207 in the Rocksville. I would, yeah, half the the audience All form an
0: orderly queue. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that orderly, we've only got two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions,
1: ladies and gentlemen? I'm not
0: sure if I answered that, but anyway, I said something.
1: Yes, front row here. The front rows are doing very... How about the, up at the back? Anybody up at the back? Oh, good. Look, look, there's someone We'll be waving. with you shortly. Yes, sir. Could you say a little bit about when you first encountered Shakespeare and grew to uh, like his work?
0: Well, I, I, yes, well, my, as, although you know, I grew up in Bermondsey, my mother, who's a big influence, who was one of those... She was, she was evacuated during the war, and she was a clever grammar school girl who got to grammar school, but there was no way her dad wasn't interested in her going on. It was just after all. There's no way she could afford to go to university. But in common with a whole raft of, I think, men and women, particularly women of that generation, she visited her, her, her ambition on me. Um, and, you know, she was very keen. Me and my brothers went to university. And Of course, no one in my family had been, ever been to university before. And she also used to take us to the National Theatre. It was newly opened um, on the South Bank. And not just there, to the West End So She'd go up and get tickets in the morning and take us up. So when I was eight, I lived in Bermondsey. We get the train into central London, which seems so glamorous, you know, with the big streets and the policemen and the, um, and, and the big theatres. And I saw quite a lot of Shakespeare when I was young. And actually, although obviously in some sense you can't fully appreciate Shakespeare, perhaps as a, as a child, um, I fell in love with that, that exquisite language. And, you know, he seems an amazing phenomenon to me, Shakespeare. Anyone who's a writer is... Just, I think Harold Bloom says the only real appropriate stance in front of Shakespeare is kind of awe, because, and anyway, I, was, I had this very depressed period in my 40s, and I did a version of Hamlet, my own version, um, and it was, I mean, I did a little bit of Shakespeare in there, and I can still quote soliloquies from Hamlet, uh, but it was sort of my own version, slightly comic, and I was in some ways living out my own depression, because you can easily construe Hamlet, I think, as the sort of first depressive on the English stage, in a sense. You know, this is a man, an intelligent man who can't bring himself to act. He's he's, he's introverted in a way that no-one had ever been, I think, probably on the English stage before Shakespeare. Uh, And a little addenda to that, I, I thought, well, who's the opposite of Hamlet? You know, a man with all this, you know, motive to act, can't bring himself to... I thought, I know, Frankie Fraser. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Frankie's work. <laughs> I hope not. Because he was essentially a torturer stroke hit man uh, who, whose activities necessitated 37 years in prison. Um, but he'd come out and written a little sort of memoir, you know, like a crime memoir, and, um, and I took him for lunch. And I said, Well, you know, the thing is, I'm doing Hamlet, Frankie. He said, Well, I'll do him for if you like. <laughs> <laughs> But I really did find that, in a sense, what what made me come out of that depression was the was the realization that you know Shakespeare had been there 300 years before that um, the, the 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 you know the, the greatest efforts of humanity, in a sense, were concentrated in that guy's writing, and you know Shakespeare is a reason to be alive. I think.
1: Excellent. Sounds rather grand. Well, it I is, think? but now there was the. L- person who was waving, there's the windmill up there, <laughs> keep well your done. hands going and we'll get the
0: mic to you. I'll tell you a joke while the thing's going along there. <laughs> Man goes to the doctor again, he says, I can't say my THs or Fs, the doctor says, well, you can't say fairer than that then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Follow that, madam.
0: <laughs> See, I've got <laughs> to be loving these old jokes now. <laughs> <laughs> I used to hate them. But... Yeah, Hello, Am I on? You are. Yeah.
1: Arthur, I'm going to be very naughty. Um, I have we slept resist. together?
0: <laughs> this has happened to me be before. I can't
1: resist it. What the hell have you got in your pocket? It looks like a, a large piece <laughs> of I've underwear. My...
0: <laughs> <laughs> what have I got in my pocket? Well, no, um, no. no the
1: well, other, um, the other I think one. this is a first. Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. That's... Mr. Smith's attache case, shall I? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it's my executive briefcase. I also have a notebook. Anyone should always carry a notebook. I've got me
1: pass. Oh, oh, come on, Arthur. <laughs> I've
0: got a packet mm-hmm. of fags, which I shouldn't have, and my... Does anyone want their blood sugar tested?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyway, my question, Mr. Yes. Smith, is how does it feel to be a
0: national treasure? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. It, it's interesting, this Who whole concept of national treasure, which i first, I think you arrive at a certain point. It's somewhere beyond institution. Um, uh, national treasure. I, I wonder, have we got any French people? Do they have a... What is the equivalent in other countries? It's a strange British thing, is it? National treasure. I wonder if they have a phrase in French or... Italian for something similar. Legend d'honneur. d'honneur. No, but that's actually an that's award what you given, get, isn't yes. it?
1: Yes. That's, for being a national treasure.
0: Yeah, it's a sort of like it conferred on you, I think, by Radio 4 listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, I, would, I was at St Pancras Station a while back, and a man came up to me and said, you're a star. I said, oh, no. I'm this." He said, no, you're a star. I said, no. And he looked at me and he went, you star? <laughs> And, <laughs> and in some ways I'm delighted to be called the National Treasurer, but I must always pinch and remind myself that I am no more or less important than the biggest wanker in this
1: room. <laughs> That's got <quite> a competition. <laughs> mm. now You're I'll... doing well yourself now. <laughs> yes. I'm up there with the leaders. <laughs> now, we've got about... Oh, four minutes left, Arthur. Oh yeah, let me read. I'm going to read two little bits. Just one.
0: um, uh, This is another school thing, and then I'm going to read the final little thing about Edinburgh. Um, It was funny when I start. You know, I used to think. Well, well, people read uh, biographies, and you think a showbiz biography. Why the hell do they just buy buy with all the bloody youth growing up shit? Why they? You know, we all know. You know, they grew up, had a few laughs. But it's odd when you come to write it. In the end, it's the your childhood, your younger years, that seem to glow most strongly in your mind, shall we say. Partly, perhaps, because I think you're finding narratives and... Anyway, this is... Um... In my final term at junior school, I enjoyed the most... Actually, let me just say, there are only teachers here today. Well, this is for you. In my final term at junior school, I enjoyed the most entertaining and instructive lesson in all of my school days, inspired by Mrs Logan, who took P.E. in the school hall on the first floor. For some reason, we boys were required to remove our shorts with their stains and comforting marbles in order to do the exercises in our underpants. By the age of 11, this had become extremely embarrassing we felt sheepish and vulnerable in front of the girls who had no such humiliating requirement. As we gingerly stripped off one day, Tom Simpson got his shorts caught on the end of his foot and kicked them free with such alacrity that they sailed through the air straight out of an open window (laughs) and down to the playground below. There was a moment while everyone took in this stupendous occurrence. Then, of course, came screams of laughter. Tom Simpson, stricken with shame, began to cry as all the embarrassment we other boys felt suddenly rushed from us to him. The girls were laughing hard too. Everyone except Mrs Logan and Simpson was screaming in hilarity. Poor old Tom, flying by now. We've got two hours to live, everyone. Poor old Tom, it's not inappropriate, in a way. Eventually, Mrs. Logan regained an uneasy silence, if not control. The lesson was in disarray until, in a moment of inspiration she surely never surpassed in her teaching career, Mrs. Logan shouted, Right, all you boys, throw your shorts out the window. <laughs> what a fantastic invitation. Tom's emasculation was forgotten, he stopped sobbing as we queued up to launch our shorts to the window. The occasion had become funny in a good way, such that even Mrs Logan and Tom were enjoying themselves. In fact, Tom now looked like a trailblazing hero. The children in the class below must surely have relished the strange sight of the sky-raining boys' shorts as we trooped down to retrieve them Chortling and tittering, our newfound solidarity meant the giggling girls now seemed admiring rather than threatening. And I learnt the truth that one man in in public, in his pants, is pitiable, but ten is a posse of fun. (laughs) I wonder if anyone else who was there that day remembers this incident. Tom Simpson may, and possibly Mrs Logan too, if she's still alive. But I doubt anyone else does. The images of youth that stay with us into adulthood often seem to others arbitrary and without apparent significance. Or maybe it was for others in the class the astounding event that lives in my mind. At any rate, ever since that PE lesson, the phrase has periodically returned to me, acting as a call to arms, a bold plan in a tricky situation, an invitation to creative mayhem. Boys! Throw your shorts out of the window.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and just finally, just a quick one finally. I'm just going to read the first bit of my chapter nine. In late summer, it's the only thing to do. For two of the past 30 years, I've missed it. And both times, I felt like all my friends were having a terrific t- get-together while I had stupidly chosen to stay home and sulk. The Edinburgh Festival is one of the world's great parties, an orgy of self-expression that encourages experimentation and welcomes the amateur performer as well as the professional. It has provided a ravishing playground for my own imagination and the things that I have done in my career, of which I'm most proud, all started in one way or another in this stern, dramatic, unique city in the month of August where the streets are alive with young wannabes chanting the performer's mantra, I'll get drunk, I'll get laid, I'll get spotted, I'll get paid. (laughs) My adulthood has been measured out in Edinburgh fringes and if the event did not exist, I would have had a different life. And I would like to thank anyone from Edinburgh here, all you lot who go out to all these shows, weird, wonderful, spectacular, and shit that they are. (laughs) And you go every bloody year. And I thank you, and thank you. Good afternoon. All I sit down again. Sit down,
1: sit down. Arthur. Silence, please. I'm so intrigued by the way you've treated the stage, I'll get Lady Antonia Fraser to <laughs> empty her handbag all over it the week on Monday. She's
0: coming to my room like
1: later.
0: <laughs> She's quite sexy, Lady Antonia. Before you,
1: before you attend to Lady Antonia, you are signing copies of your book. <laughs> my name is Daphne Fairfax and the London Review of Book Signing tech, which is just next door, out that door, turn left and left again, or that door, right and right again. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, could I ask you to join me in expressing our appreciation for our splendid and inventive signer, thank Mr. Ross. And ladies and gentlemen, it's been an absolutely cracking session, particularly when you've got the light as well. I'll never forget it, nor will you. i give you Mr. Arthur Smith. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Al. Pleasure
0: i As- <laughs>